Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So, in uh, 2017, early 2017, an Indian political philosopher named Pankaj Mishra published a book called The Age of Anger, A History of the Present. Um, and this book came out in probably in February of 2017, um, basically right after Trump took office. Um, and it was very prescient. I mean, it was basically a book talking about political philosophy and trying to understand why it was that there was this growing anger and resurgence of you know, right-wing racist and, and, and extremist movements around the world, and trying to do it as a, as a political philosopher. And it was very, a very prescient book, and I think a book that really has set a tone for thinking about what it's like to be alive today, um, in which anger seems to be front and center um, in, uh, in political life and in public life, all across the political spectrum, and around the world, and, and uh, trying to think about that. Um, as a scholar of Kabbalah, among other things, as, uh, as, as Shmuley says, um, I thought this is something that, about which Kabbalah has a lot to say. Um, and the Jewish tradition in general has a lot to say. Reflections on anger and the meaning of anger and the ways to control anger are uh, a pretty major theme in uh, Jewish writing, going back to the Bible, and certainly in the Talmud and rabbinic literature, and then very, very centrally in Kabbalah. And I went scurrying off to my books and trying to say, well, what, what does Kabbalah really have to say about it? Uh, and I discovered that there would be a way of reading the Kabbalistic tradition, certainly the, in the classical phase, in which anger plays a central role. Um, I've called my talk a poetic mythology for our age of anger, uh, because my main work in Kabbalah is about the, the Zohar, the 13th century, the vast 13th century uh, compendium of Kabbalistic writings. And it's a work written in um, a very, very literary style, a very poetic style, and whose core is, is, a, is a very, very complicated and elaborate mythology. Um, and I call it a poetic mythology. It's also the title, uh, it's in the title of the book that I wrote on the subject as well but a poetic mythology for our age of anger. And when I say it's a, it's a poetic mythology for the age of anger, I mean not to provide an answer to any of the pressing issues, but a language, yeah, oh well, but a language in which to think about it, a language in which to imagine solutions, a language in which to imagine problems. Um, I often say when I'm teaching Kabbalah that Kabbalah doesn't give answers, it makes the questions more acute makes the problems worse. You think that's a problem? Let me tell you, in Kabbalah, it shows you how deep a problem it really is. But it also gives you a language, an imaginative language to think about it. Um, on this screen, uh, but the, the technology is not really showing it, uh, there is a painting 
painted, I'll show you what it's supposed to look like. Uh, painted in the late 60s um, by Faith Ringgold, an African-American artist. Um, this is the painting that's supposed to be in the background here. You see it's a different, different color palette. Um, Faith Ringgold is an amazing uh, African-American artist in a number of different media. And she did this painting called Die. And it's basically, it more or less depicts a race riot. Right? And if you'll see in the front, there are two children, a white child and a black child, hugging each other in fear from what's going on. Um, if you take a look, right? And she's an amazing artist. And uh, it, something interesting is when I began to work on anger and I was looking for artistic representations, it's interesting that there aren't that many. It's a very interesting fact. I thought for sure I would find, say, in the Renaissance or Baroque period, paint depictions of anger in from the Bible depicted by the classic artists of the Renaissance. And there really weren't. And it's really an interesting fact, and it's something to think about. Maybe I'll come back to that, that question a little bit later in the talk. Um, so let's start with this. Um, and again, the, the color palette is supposed to be red to anger. It's, it's an interesting, uh, perhaps it's a kind of Kabbalistic tikkun that the red palette of my original uh, uh, graphics has been transformed here in Arizona to a light green, it's sort of a sweetened, cooled off version. This is a poster that's appeared, a sign that's appeared at many rallies in the last couple of years. If you are not angry, you are not paying attention. Right? And I've seen that at many, many demonstrations that I've been to. Um, and there's a sense that the, there's a justified anger. Right? That there are times in history when anger is justified, when if you're not angry, then it shows that you don't have a moral sense. Right? And as I say, I just wanted to, the, 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 the currency of this, the contemporaneous of this issue, I think, is depicted by this, and again, a, a sign which has appeared at many, many um, demonstrations and protests um, over the last couple of years. But of course, we know that anger is very dangerous. Anger is one of the most dangerous things. And that's why it has attracted the attention of religious thinkers around the world, and in particular in the Jewish tradition. So let's start with this saying, a fairly well-known saying from the Talmud, and I'll come back to it a little bit later. It's actually longer than, than I've depicted here. Um, a person may be recognized through his anger. Adam nikar bekaso, right? That somehow when a person gets angry, you, then, you, then you know the real person. That's how you know the real person, when they get angry. Then you can see, all right, now I, yeah, I, the mask drops, and now I can see something about you. There's something, this kind of saying says there's something very, very deep about anger. There's something that goes to the very formation of the kind of person you are, the formation of subjectivity as academics would say, what kind of person you are, somehow it's bound up with how you encounter anger. A person may be recognized through his anger, and I'm gonna come back to that. The other saying that I wanna put out there, and I'll come back to both of these, is sort of the leitmotif of this presentation, is this saying from the Zohar. And I'll, in a second, I'll give you a little overview of the Zohar. There is anger and there is anger, right? Meaning that there are two kinds of angers. This is a very, very common formulation in the Zohar, we say, there is and there is, with the same noun following each there is, in which one is good and one is bad, right? Well, we say it even in English today. You know, are there any, are there any restaurants in Phoenix? Well, there are restaurants and then there are restaurants. I mean, you might say that in English. In the Zohar, it has a very, very particular spin, and it often means the, one, the first one is holy, 
or divine, and the second one is evil or demonic. Eat rugza, eat rugza. And actually, this would be, I always like to give a little Aramaic lesson each time I teach anything about the Zohar. So let's see if, we, if there's one Aramaic phrase you can take away, it'll be this one. Let's do it together. Eat rugza, vi eat rugza. Great, thank you, thank you. And we'll come back to this in, in its context. Again, back to the Talmud. The Talmud has some very harsh things to say about anger, yeah. right? And this would be an example. I mean, what could be worse? He who rends his garments in his anger, he who breaks his vessels in his anger, regard him as one engaged Navodazara in alien worship, often translated as idolatry, but I like to translate it more literally as alien worship because of the alienness of it. Right? And the alienness of it will become very important here. That somehow, if you lose control of yourself in anger, it's like you're an idolater. Right? And we'll talk about, we're going to talk about why, why that should be. And the, the passage continues. Rabbi Abin said, what verse proves this? And here's the verse. They quote a verse. He, Rabbi Abin quotes a verse from Psalms, which actually has nothing to do with anger. And he says, this, is, this verse proves it. And the verse says, there shall be no alien God, this is why I translate it as alien, there shall be no alien God in thee, neither shalt thou worship any foreign God. So in Hebrew, it's lo yebecha el zav, lo tishtachavela el nechar. Right? Who is the alien God? So they, they interpret this verse, what, what academic scholars call hyper-literally. It says, lo yebecha el zav, there shall not be in you any alien god. In, you know, the plain meaning would be there shouldn't be in your, in your culture, in your neighborhood, in your temple, there shouldn't be any idol. Right? That would be sort of the plain meaning. But the rabbis, sometimes to get an interesting interpretation, they interpret it hyper-literally. There should not be in you an alien god. And so he goes on and he says, last three lines, who is the alien god that resides in a man's body? Say, this is the evil inclination. The evil inclination, so there are two things you learn about this. First of all, that the evil inclination, Rabbi Abin says, is something alien, right? something other. It's like something that's in you, but it's alien to you. In psychoanalysis, we'd say it's your id. That's something that's in you, but alien to you. The, the id is all the desires that have not been uh, in, in integrated into your ego. And so it's alien, and also the idea that it's an alien god, that there's something about it that's demonic, right? That somehow within you that there's this, you know, the, the rabbis thought everyone has a divine element in them, but that there's also this other element. There's this alien god element in a person, a sort of a demonic, idolatrous uh, thing in you that is alien. Right? And this is a very profound teaching here. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Okay. So now that we've learned already, we've learned a couple of things. We've learned that uh, the rabbis had a lot of problems with anger. They thought anger was really a bad thing. And if you uh, get angry, if you go lose control of yourself when you're angry, it's like you're an idolater, which is what could be worse in Judaism, right? And we learned that, it, you know, get associated, the anger, anger is associated with this, with, with an idol, with an alien god. Now, there's a problem. Immediately you might have a problem. Because if there's one thing we know about the Hebrew Bible, is that God gets angry a lot, right? In fact, the, the sort of perhaps the slur that says the Old Testament God is an angry God, but there's something to it. God does get angry a lot in the Bible. Very often, God is also loving. God is also, you know, has lots of different emotions in, in, the, in the Tanakh. 
right? But one thing that God does a lot is gets angry. And so I, of the many, many, many instances of God's anger in the Bible, I chose two. Uh, and they both have to do with God's anger getting out of control. So first of all, in the, in the Torah, in the first five books, there is a lot of depictions of divine anger as fire. And in fact, the verb used for God getting angry is vayichar af, which literally means his nose scorched. And there's an image of a fire coming out of God's nose. Right? And one might say, God becomes a fire, some kind of fire-breathing dragon. Right? That's the verb used, vayichar af. So here's a... Here's a um, a, a fairly minor incident among the many incidents in the desert when God gets angry at the people of Israel, this is a fairly minor one. It doesn't really, it really doesn't even say specifically what they did wrong. They were complaining. No, if you were wandering in the desert for 40 years, you'd also complain, right? So this is from, from Bamidbar, from the book of Numbers. And when the people complained, and the syntax here is a little weird, when the people complained evil in the ears of God, of yud and Yudhe heard, and his anger was kindled. And the literal meaning here is his nose scorched. And the fire of Yudhe burnt among them and consumed those who were in the outskirts of the camp. And so this is a great depiction of the indiscriminately destructive nature of fire. We know that when there's a fire someplace, it, it burns randomly. You know, a town that's destroyed by fire, sometimes there'll be a one house that is still standing. Fire is a random method of destruction, right? And it doesn't spare anybody. And the idea that God's anger is fire also suggests that when it gets kindled, it leads to random destruction, not necessarily directed at the, at the targets, at the, at the cause, right? It doesn't say God's fire burned up the people who are complaining, right? It says God's fire consumed those who were in the outskirts of the camp, sort of random people who happened to be there, right? And the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to God, to Yudhe and the fire subsided, right? It's an amazing scene, and it's a very, very short story. I mean, that's the whole story, basically, right? It's really not clear what they did that was so bad, but the anger of God was kindled, and it destroyed indiscriminately. Here's another example from the book of Chronicles, and this, this verse really struck me that it almost seems as though God is like stunned by his own destructiveness, something that happens to human beings often, right? Um, I'm sure there are people, I, you know what, I always think there's probably one person in this room who's never gotten angry in his or her life. I bet there's one person like that, right? But all the rest of us are, you know, sort of more fallible human beings, and uh, uh, we get angry. And one, one thing that you know from the experience of anger is you often say things you didn't mean, you might slam your hand down on the table. You might say an insult. You might raise your voice. And you think, Wait, whoa, what happened to me? What, why did that happen to me? It's not something, I'm, that's not me, right? It's like I'm possessed, right? And it turns, out this, it turns out there's a divine experience of this. And Elohim sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, God saw it and he repented of the evil. Right? God gets angry. He sends a destructive angel. And then he says, whoa. It's, it's almost like God being stunned at his own. A very, very human description. 
And an interesting feature of this verse is that there are two different names for God being used, Elohim and Yudhei And it is true that in general, in the Bible, and the rabbis were very attentive to this, the name Elohim is associated with judgment and with harshness, and the name Yudhei more with compassion. And this becomes very, very important in Kabbalah, but it's also noticed by the rabbis. And the, you see there are two names of God here. It's a very interesting feature of this verse. Yes? That's what it says. The Hebrew says, Vayinachem al Now, the word that I'm translating as evil, which is ra'ah, which means evil, it could mean not moral evil, but of the, you know, evil meaning the, the, the harm that was inflicted. But the, the verse says, Vayinachem al That's It's very simple. He repented of the evil, right? It's a very, 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 very powerful verse, very, very stunning verse, certainly a very stunning verse for anyone who has an image of God sort of in a Maimonides way of God being perfect and unchanging and without emotions and without change and without, you know, Not you know. Exactly. I mean, this verse is what could be more human than this, right? Okay, so now here we have two verses about divine anger, right? And now let's go back to this, right? He who rends his garments in anger, regard him as one engaged in Avodah in, in alien worship. There shall be no alien God in thee, right? On this verse, on this question of anger, that somehow anger is in some way a, an idolatrous thing, a demonic thing. And then what we know, and the rabbis in the Talmud certainly knew, that God in the Bible gets angry all the time. So what does that mean? Right? Could it be, is there a suggestion here right, that, they, that the face, the angry face of God is somehow a demonic face? Right? And I think this is something that comes out in Kabbalah. Right? that the demonic, the sort of the, the, the evil forces in the world are somehow the flip side of the divine, the, some, somehow a distortion of the divine. Um, in fact, the main term in Kabbalah uh, for the demonic side of the universe is the sitra achra, which is an Aramaic term, and all it means is the other side. That's all it means. Right? It's a very neutral sounding term, the other side. Well, two sides of the same coin, right? It's the other side. One side is divine, one side is demonic. Um, I find something that I said also today at noon, that this way of looking at religious experience is very, very honest. Because we know that in the world, there are many good things happening, and there are many terrible things happening. And if you believe that the divine is everywhere, right? seems almost too easy to say the good things are all from God and the bad things, well, they're all from people, right? If God is everywhere, it seems like letting God off the hook a little bit. This way of looking at things seems more realistic, that there are these different faces of God. There is a the divine face, there is a demonic face, right? There is the, the, the El, which is the holy El, the holy God, and there's the El Zar, the alien God which has this very, very different face. Okay. Let's go back to the Talmud. There is this famous passage in the Talmud in the tractate Brachot, the tractate on blessings, about God praying. Right? And there, in the Talmud in general, the rabbis uh, humanize God. They, they, they depict God as putting on tefillin 
They depict God in all kinds of very, very human ways. And one of the things they say is, you know, what does God pray? How does God pray? Because we think of, it almost seems like a contradiction, because we think of prayers, we pray to God. So how can we say that God prays? How, how can God pray? Who does God pray to? So this is this famous passage where it says, what does the Blessed Holy One pray? And this is what he prays. And there's actually a, a, a famous uh, Chabad Nigun, a melody that goes along with this, with this prayer. This is what God prays. May it be my will that my compassion may conquer my anger. That's what God prays. God's prayer has to centrally, centrally concerns God's struggle with anger. May be my will that my compassion may conquer my anger and that, and that my compassion may roll over my attributes. Presumably the word other is missing here, my other attributes. So that I may conduct myself with my children with the attribute of compassion and that I will go for their sake beyond the letter of the law. That's what the Talmud says. That's what God prays. And then it proves that, the, you know how they prove it is true? It turns out a rabbi went and saw God and taka. This is the, how it happened. So then there's a story. Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Elisha. Now, Rabbi Ishmael was the high priest, right? And he says, I once entered into the innermost sanctum of the temple to offer incense. That's all, remember the incense part of it. It becomes very important. And saw, and he had a vision of God. And the vision of God was under this name, Akachel Ya Adonai Tzvaot. And a, an approximate translation would be the crown god, the god of hosts. And this is one of the most mystical passages in the Talmud. It seems to be borrowing from the kind of mysticism that was prevalent at the time, the Hechalot mysticism, mysticism of the palaces, but it doesn't really appear in the Talmud except in this passage or in a couple of other passages. I once entered into the innermost sanctum of the temple to offer incense and saw Akachel Yadunait Svaot seated upon a high and exalted throne. Wow. And he said to me, Yishmael, my son, bless me. Right? And that's a really an amazing moment, right? That becomes very important in later Judaism. The idea that God needs our blessing. Yishmael, my son, bless me. I replied, May it be thy will that thy compassion may conquer thy anger, and that thy compassion may roll over thy attributes, thy, or thine attributes, maybe I should have written, so that thou my, mayest conduct thyself with thine children with the attribute of compassion, and mayest go for their sake beyond the letter of the law. And he nodded to me with his head. And I, I've spent many hours, my eyes closed, imagining this figure, Akachel Yad Naitzvaot, seated at a high exalted throne, nodding with his head. And for people who know the Jewish liturgy a little bit, there's a song that's sung in many synagogues on Saturday morning at the very end of the service, in which this, there's an allusion to this scene. It says, uh, right? It's the end of the Anim Zmirot song, a prayer, and it's an allusion to this very scene uh, in, in the Talmud. So it, the Talmud here, this story in the Talmud is stressing that this is God's prayer. This is God's struggle, right? God's struggle is the struggle with anger, right? And that somehow the divine personality is dependent on a particular kind of confrontation with and domestication of divine anger. It's an amazing thing here. And if you look at it in the context of the Bible, you can see, wow, it really makes sense. The rabbis are really onto something here. 
with this notion that this is what God's prayer is. Okay, a brief stepping out of the, this, the Jewish tradition to this amazing, this amazing interview with Maya Angelou that I found online. Maya Angelou was a great, great, great African-American poet. Um, and she did this uh, interview in 2006. Um, and this is before our, the, our current period. Uh, <coughs> and she says this. And again, uh, you know, uh, in, on my computer, it's red. The palette is red. And somehow the tikkun of this temple has, has <laughs> sweetened the red into green. If you're not angry, she says, you're either a stone or you're too sick to be angry. You must not be bitter. Bitterness is like cancer. It eats upon the host. So use that anger. You write it. You paint it. You dance it. You march it. You vote it. You do everything about it. You talk it. Never stop talking. Right? It's beautiful. I mean, she, it, this is just an interview, and she's, she's such a poet. She, she, she can't help speaking poetry, even though she's, she's sitting with somebody being interviewed. Um, a couple of things to notice here. There are a lot of reflections among African-American intellectuals um, in the 20th century and before about anger, about how to deal with anger. The situation of African-Americans, obviously, in the United States is one that uh, can make uh, uh, somebody experiencing it very, very angry and trying to figure out how to relate to that kind of anger. And there are a lot of reflections. James Baldwin wrote some very profound things. And here, my Angelus is something interesting. You know, she said, yes, of course you have to be angry, right? But don't be bitter. So, the, so one might say, to translate Maya Angelou into Aramaic, I would say, eat rugzavi, eat rugza. There's anger and there's anger. She calls it anger and bitterness, but it's really sort of two different kinds of anger. She said there's a kind of anger that's productive. You write it, you paint it, you dance it, you march it, you vote it, you do everything about it, you talk it. Right? And then there's a kind of anger that is not productive, that's destructive to the person who's angry. There's the bitter anger. So one might say there's the elzar, to put her to use a Hebrew term, there's the the alien god that's within that is not productive, but that destroys the host, right? And then there's the anger that that can be productive, and that anger, of course, what she's talking about is the anger about social injustice. That's obvious, right? That it can be a productive anger. It gets people in the streets. It gets people voting. It gets people marching. It gets people doing uh, a social action work. And it's really the same teaching that we find in the Zohar. And again. Coincidentally enough, the very next slide is there is anger and there is anger. Eat rugzavi, rugza, the Aramaic version of Maya Angelou's teaching. Okay. So that was the preface to my talk. And now I'll do the introduction to my talk. <laughs> Just, uh, no. <laughs> Here's the introduction. Um, I've been talking about the Zohar, what is the Zohar, and I, this is the same introduction I did earlier today, but for people who weren't here, um, the Zohar is this vast, it's actually a four-volume, vast, sprawling uh, anthology of writings, Kabbalistic writings, that is really the central work of Kabbalah, and all of Kabbalah after it is a commentary on it in one way or another. Um, where does it come from? Well, Kabbalah appears in Provence, the first really sign of it that we have is in Provence in the late 12th century, around 1160, 1170, but clearly preceded by some decades previously because the writings we have from that period already assume that there's an audience for it. They already assume that you know it. You know, Jewish writings never introduce anything. They already assume that, they already assume that you know 
everything that you're about to read. Talmud is like that. Zohar is like that. Um, so sometime in early to mid uh, 12th century Provence, it then crosses the Pyrenees to Spain and flourishes in two centers, one in Catalonia, in Girona and Barcelona, and in Castile and a number of cities, Burgos and Soria and Toledo. Um, and the culmination of this period is the, the Sefer Azor, which is, this, again, this vast work written in Castile in the late 13th century in Aramaic. The current scholarly thinking is that it was composed by a number of different writers. We know about maybe half a dozen names. Um, and the process of composition is a little bit mysterious. We're not really sure exactly how it was done, whether it was edited, who edited it. Um, it circulated in pamphlets. And people had different, you know, we look in the 14th century, it's clear that different Kabbalists had different amounts of it, different sections of it. Eventually, a lot of it is collected and published in the mid-16th century in Italy um, in the uh, three volumes that we know today. And then an additional volume was published at the end of the 16th century, uh, making the fourth volume. Um, and as I say, written in Aramaic, a poetic work, a mythological work, um, and uh, the central resource of Kabbalah. A little introduction to Kabbalistic mythology. I said this is a, a work of poetic mythology. Although people generally think that it would be heretical or un-Jewish to talk about distinct personae or faces of God, and that was, certainly would be true for a philosopher like Maimonides, that is not true in Kabbalah and certainly not true in 13th century Kabbalah and the Zohar, in which there are a number of different what the Kabbalists would later call partsufim, or faces of God, and which I call here in the Zohar, the, in English I call it the personae, which is really a very close uh, translation of the word partsufim. And there are really five of them. There's, a, there's an uppermost being called the Holy Ancient One, Atika Kadisha, also sometimes called Sabad Savin, which could mean the, most, the oldest one or even the grandfather of grandfathers. <coughs> Um, below that figure, there are, there are two couples, two conjugal couples. There's a father and a mother, the supernal father and the supernal mother, Abba Ilah and Ima Ilah, and they have two children. It's a holy family. And their two children are the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, the Kaddish Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah, who are also called by many other names, including bridegroom and bride. So although they are siblings, they are also uh, a married couple. And uh, for people who know the L'Chadodi song that is sung in every synagogue in the world on Friday night, that is a Kabbalistic song composed in the 16th century in Tzfat um, that depicts the, uh, a, a, a union, a marriage between the divine male and the divine female. There is also an, the other side. On the other side, on the demonic side, there are also two figures in the Zohar, Samael and Lilith, who are really the male and female devils in Kabbalah. In other 13th century works, there's another couple as well. There's Ashmedai and the lesser Lilith. So there are actually two couples in some 13th century works. Uh, the Zohar doesn't really talk about Ashmedai and the lesser Lilith. They really focus on Samael and Lilith, who are the kind of the demonic or diabolical uh, uh, counterparts to the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah. Now, I know that for people who are not used to Kabbalistic mythology, 
sometimes when I give this kind of talk, people say, this is not Judaism. Judaism doesn't have all these figures. And I say, well, it turns out the Zohar is probably next to the Tanakh and the Talmud, the Bible and the Talmud, is probably the holiest, generally considered the holiest work in Judaism, and this is very central to it. Um, of course, the Kabbalists always say, even though there are these five figures, they always say, the kolachad, and all is one, that there's a fundamental unity underlying all these figures, um, and a lot of the work of Kabbalah is about unifying them. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Yes. Just a little bit more on the Zohar and then these um, people, God, you know, whatever. Did these come from um, the, the Talmud? I mean, and then they took it further, or did they, were these written when we talked about them being written in the 11th century or 12th century? Were, were they, um, I mean, what was, I, I, I just don't. What were they thinking? What were they based on? I guess, where were they coming okay. from? Okay. Good question. This is the kind of question for which the question is very good and which the answers are going to be not satisfying. Um, there's a lot of debate about this, right? About how they had the nerve to do this. Um, I teach, I have a group of people who study the Zohar with me every other week in my home for the last eight years. And in the very beginning, a very good friend of mine who was actually the instigator of the whole group, an Israeli writer, every time we would get to something like this, he'd say, why weren't these people burned at the stake? <laughs> he was shocked about it. I would say this. Um, they're doing something radical and something new, right? Uh, it draws on a number of features of biblical and rabbinic mythology. For example, in the Bible, a famous thing about the Bible is that there are different names of God. And in fact, that the the fact that there are all these different names of God led Bible critics in the 19th century to say, well, that must mean that the Bible is written by different people at different times who had, you know, came from different religious traditions who had different names of God, right? Now, the rabbis noticed that, too, that there are all these different names of God, and the rabbis tried to give that meaning. Um, the Kabbalists really are picking up in, in, on that. And the Kabbalists really do. They take... You know, in classic Jewish fashion, they take the problems in the text and they make the problems central. You say there are all these different names of God? Well, let me tell you. Turns out there's a whole holy family out there, right? You don't even know, you know, this is where an example of, you don't even know how serious your question is. When you tell me that, how do I deal with the fact that there are different names of God in the Bible? Let me tell you, you don't even understand how serious a question it is, right? Um, they pick up on that. Right? They pick up on the fact that God seems to show different faces to the Jews in the Bible, a loving face, an angry face, a warlike face, a peace-like face. Right? Um, there is a passage, and I don't, I don't remember it by heart, where God says to Moses, God gets very angry, and, he, and God says to Moses, don't pray to me now. He says, wait until my face has passed, or my faces have passed. Right, Adasher Panaya Avoru. Right, it's a very, very strange passage. And in fact, the Talmud says that we learn from this verse that you should never try to reconcile with somebody when they're in the middle of their anger. Right, 
Because even God says, don't pray to me now. Wait until my face has passed. And it also suggests that God has different faces. Right? Um, these names, this idea that there's a father and a mother and a son and a daughter, and they have sexual, and a lot of the Zohar is very graphically sexual. It's very radical. And there are, there certainly are, there are a couple of antecedents in rabbinic literature, but it is an astonishingly bold thing that they did there. Um, and, that's, and I think I'll leave it at that. You know, the, these names, the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, the Kaddish Baruch and the Shekhinah, are two of the main names used for God in rabbinic literature. Except in rabbinic literature, they're not separate personae. The Shekhinah is really always used when it's like the presence of God in the world. It's sometimes translated as the indwelling presence. Um, and, and there's only, like, there's one rabbinic passage, there's one passage in the Talmud in which the Shekhinah appears to be separate from the Blessed Holy One. It's a very strange passage. I'm not sure if it's in the Talmud or in the Midrash, um, in which there seems to be a suggestion. You think, wait a second, was there something going on at that time, even in rabbinic times, that gave rise to this? Was there some kind of subterranean tradition which was transmitted to the Kabbalists? A lot of this is, is quite mysterious, and we don't really know. But, uh, but it, uh, let's leave that question in, in all the boldness of Kabbalistic innovation in the 12th and 13th century. And as I, I said this morning, you know, they, they presented their work as something very old, as the oldest possible wisdom, even while, of course, knowing that they were inventing it. Right? They always say, we discovered this. This is the book given to Adam. Right? And they, they know they're writing it, so they know it's not the book of Nehemiah, they know they're writing it. And, but they, they experience it, and maybe they even experience that they're channeling sort of the oldest possible wisdom. It's a very interesting double consciousness they have um, in this innovation. Yeah? In the, I don't know much about Greek mythology, but I know that there were lots of, of different gods. And is there any connection between... Well, that would... I mean, you know, you wonder, right? You wonder. You wonder. You wonder what the chains of transmission... Yes. I mean, you wonder what the chains of transmission were. And then, as I say, you know, they keep on saying the kolachad and all is one and all is one and all is one. But you wonder. You wonder. Let's go back to anger. This is a, a, a little bit more of that same passage. There is anger and there is anger. There is anger that is blessed from above and below. And there is anger that is cursed above and below. Right? So again, just sort of spelling it out a little bit. And it's clear that one anger is holy, one anger is demonic and evil. Um, and they, in fact, in the, uh, I, don't give, I don't give the rest of this passage here, but they go on to associate the different kinds of anger with different biblical figures. And uh, when the Zoharic writers talk about biblical figures, they don't, they're not only talking about them as human beings, but as metaphysical figures. So, for example, they associate the blessed anger with Abraham when he engages in, uh, at, there's a scene in Genesis where Abraham goes to war to rescue his nephew. And they associate the holy anger with Abraham in this warlike mode. Um, and they associate the, the evil anger with Shimon and Levi. Remember, you know the story when their sister gets raped and they go and they actually exterminate the town where she was raped. Um, and they associate the evil anger with Shimon and Levi. And when the Zohar does this kind of thing, it's not only talking about these human beings. It's actually they're talking about them as metaphysical beings. Abraham is associated with a particular element in the divine. And Shimon and Levi, in, at least in, in a certain strand of the Zoharic writing, are associated with, with demonic figures. Okay. Now here, since you mentioned Greek, right, 
I hurriedly, since you asked the question about Greek, I hurriedly typed in a Greek word, right? <laughs> Divine sparagmos, right? Now, sparagmos is a Greek word meaning tearing apart. And uh, I got it from really the uh, literary uh, critic uh, Northrop Frye, who uses it to describe a certain element in Greek mythology and, and, and narratives that draw from it. Divine sparagmos, the tearing apart. Where does the demonic come from? Well, one of the ways in which it's described in the Zohar is it comes out of a tearing apart of the divine personality by anger. Divine sparagmos and the birth of the demonic. So here's one of my favorite passages from the Zohar about the emergence of the devil and the devil's consort. And so, I mean, it's a chillingly, I mean, it's, I was, I'm gonna say it's a beautiful passage, it's also a horrifying passage, but it's really a pure mythological passage. It says, when smoke issues forth from fierce anger, and it's clear that what they're talking about here is divine anger, because we know that in the Bible, divine anger is associated with what element? Fire. So they don't even say the word fire here. They say when smoke issues from divine anger, eliding the word fire because they know that we know that divine anger is fire. What about the burning bush? Ah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Let's hold that. For when smoke issues forth from, from fierce anger, this smoke expands and goes forth, anger upon anger, this upon this, and this riding upon and dominating this, with the appearance of male and female, so that all becomes fierce anger. And when I read this passage, I always think of sitting at a campfire late at night and looking at the, fire, the smoke coming out of the campfire, right? And if you're, you know, maybe you had a couple of glasses of wine, you look at the smoke, and maybe you start seeing images in the smoke. And that's what really they're describing here. They're describing this smoke that comes, it's a byproduct. It's not even the divine anger itself. It's an unintentional byproduct of divine anger is the smoke, and it starts swirling around, right? And eventually starts taking form as male and female. And in fact, so that all becomes fierce anger. When divine anger gets out of control, the entire cosmos becomes fierce anger. And a little more in that same passage. Then the smoke of rage spreads out crookedly like a serpent. And the serpent, of course, in the Zohar, as in the Bible, is the image of evil. Sly and dangerous, he is a level of darkness. He goes up and down, roaming and hovering, until he rests in his place by settling with another level that issues from the smoke that emerges from rage. So now we have two levels that have emerged from smoke, these images, and they're male and female, as we learn in the next, the continuation of the same passage. The male is called shadow, also called Samael elsewhere. A shadow on another place called death his female consort, Lilith. When the two are combined, they are called the shadow of death. And as you may know, in the, in the Psalms, that, the, that phrase, the shadow of death, is actually one word, salmavet, right? There's the, in the famous Psalm 23, which says, yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It's gam keilech begeh, salmavet. Salmavet is, uh, is the phrase there. And salmavet is the union of the male and female devils, whose union is also described in erotic terms, and it's the counterpart on the demonic side of the union of the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah that we pray for in L'Chadadi. The demonic version of that is the shadow of death, the Tzalmavet. And it's also described very explicitly elsewhere in, in, uh, in uh, uh, erotic terms. So we, we have here, what do we have here in this passage? 
we have very explicitly in poetic mythological terms the emergence of the demonic forces out of the ripping apart of the divine personality because the divine has got, let its anger get out of control. That's what we have here, right? very explicitly. It's really a mythological version of the biblical myth of the divine anger that God gets angry and he, the, the fire of God goes into the camp and starts destroying people randomly, right? In fact, there's even a rabbinic saying that says, once the destroyer has been given permission to destroy, it doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the evil and the wicked. So that's a saying from the Talmud and relating to the, the uh, events around Passover. Um, this is the, the Zohar's way of reconciling its fundamentally dualistic approach to the universe, that there are good forces and evil forces, with its monotheism, right? How can, you, how can there be good and evil in a world with one single God, right? So there are all, you know, Jewish philosophers and Christian philosophers, any monotheistic philosophers have given all kinds of answers. The Zohar doesn't give a philosophical answer, it gives a narrative answer. Well, I'll tell you how. You know how? I'll tell you how. How can there be good and evil in a world with only one God? Let me tell you how. God gets angry. God's anger produces fire. The fire produces smoke. The smoke swirls around. It starts acquiring form, and eventually that form becomes Samael and Lilith, the devil and his wife. That's how it happens. That's not a philosophical answer. It's a mythological answer. It's an imaginative answer. It doesn't resolve the problem. It makes it worse, right? It makes it actually worse, but it gives, an, it gives you a language to imagine. It's an imaginative language, right? Is there a, is, can you reverse this process, for example? Could you reverse it? We see God's getting anger, getting out of control. Could we reverse the process, run the film backwards? Well, actually, wait. Before we reverse the process, we have to make it a little bit worse. <laughs> I forgot I included this. The color of smoke goes down into the world and goes into it by several paths. It expands in the world, leading people's spirits astray, strengthening their rage so that they will go astray in their rage. Right. So before I do the tikkun and give you the passage about how to prevent it, here's what happens. So the devil and Samael and Lilith emerge out of divine anger, and then the, the smoke then goes into the world and incites people to get angry, and anger produces more demonic forces, and in turn, and so forth and so on. Right? And that all becomes rage, as it says in the early part of the passage. Anger feeds on itself. We know. Right? You get, we get angry. If you get angry at someone, for example, let's say there's someone who you fundamentally disagree with on moral grounds, moral political grounds, you fundamentally disagree with them, you get angry at them, you yell at them. And you know what that produces? That produces them getting angry at you, and you getting angry at them, and you getting angry at you, and it goes on and on. And if you want to see this in action every day, every second of every day, just look at Facebook. This kind of, this kind, that kind of political arguments at Facebook work like that. In two seconds, people go from a specific disagreement to absolute rage at each other. Um, and it's a kind of anger feeding on itself and feeding on itself until all becomes rage. Okay. Now, let's, let's, take a, let's take a look at this. The Zohar carries to an extreme the humanization of God that goes on in the Tanakh, in the Bible, goes on in rabbinic literature, and maybe even most in the Zohar. This is from a different part of the Zohar, but it clearly emerges out of the same kind of mythological 
uh, 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 raw material as the preceding passage. The passage says, come and see. And the Zohar is all about vision. In the Talmud, one of the common ways something is introduced is say, it says tashma, tashma, come and hear. The Zohar never says tashma, come and hear. It always says tachaze, come and see. Because the Zohar is always about vision. Come and see. Fire issues from within. And again, anytime fire is issuing from within the divine, we know it's about anger. And then smoke ascends. So this is really, in a way, from the same, it's really the same kind of narrative as we had in that other passage. Of this it is written, they shall place incense in thy nose, for fire returns to its sight, and through that aroma the nose contracts inward, inward, till all is embraced, returning to its sight, and all comes near within thought and becomes one's will. Because what do you say to somebody when they're angry? You might say to them, step back, count 10. But you also might say to them, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, right? How do you get somebody to take a deep breath? Well, you could say to them, take a deep breath, and that sometimes makes them more angry. But what happens if somebody puts a little spice or like basamim, havdalah, or puts some incense near your nose? The immediate instinct is to take it in. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, right? And that's what it says here. The incense offering. Remember the incense offering from the Talmud? When Rabbi Ishmael goes and he goes, he says, I was offering the incense offering, and then I had this experience with God, right? And I, and I said to God, may your compassion overwhelm your anger and so forth, right? Remember that incense offering? Well, here it is, reappears here, a text written probably more than half a millennium later, um, the, the, about the incense offering and that the, the fire that comes out of the fire-breathing divine dragon and the smoke that emerges from that, it starts contracting going in and becoming, comes near within thought. Let's see just the, the, the continuation. I really love this passage. And when all becomes embraced, each with the other, and anger is appeased, then there is tranquility. <coughs> tranquility of spirit, the joy of all of, as one, the shining of lamps, the shining of faces. And therefore it is written, and Yudhevave inhaled the sweet incense. This verse comes from right after the flood when Noah offers a sacrifice to God after the flood to appease God's anger. God inhaled the sweet savor. As one, as one who inhales, and here the Zohar says, in case you didn't get it, the Zohar tells you, this is just like a person. As one who inhales and gathers all into its place. Because if you want to center, if you're feeling scattered and dispersed or angry, in some way you're not centered, we all know by now the way you do it is you... Focus on your breath. Take a deep breath. Try to get in touch with your breath. That's a way in which people get back to themselves, get focused, get centered, lose their anger, is you take a deep breath. It's a, it's a, it's a meditation technique that's found in every culture in the world. right? And says, that's what God does. And how does he do it? He does it because we offer the incense offering. It's up to us to appease God's anger. Now, one of the things that have, we know, if we take this passage in relationship to the other passage, we see one thing that happens here is that the aspect of God that became diabolical, that became Samael and Lilith, also disappears because they only emerged out of the smoke of divine anger that then consolidated and acquired a foothold in the world. Here we're running the film in the opposite direction. We offer the incense offering, God takes a deep breath, 
the smoke returns to the fire, the fire returns to the nose, and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, divine emotion becomes reconnected to the divine thought. And I'll say one more thing about this before I go on, a little Kabbalistic uh, insider knowledge. Um, people might have heard in Kabbalah that the, the, in addition to the personal mythology that I've described to you, there's also the mythology of the Sfirot, that the whole cosmos is structured by these 10 archetypes that Kabbalists call Sfirot. Um, and in the Zohar itself, in the main body of the Zohar, the word Sfirot is never used, even though by the time the Zohar was written, it was standard, it was a standard term. And the fact that the Zohar writers didn't use the word Sfirot is very intentional. They, I think they didn't really want you to get hung up on a specific language. They were poets, they wanted to have lots of words. And if you use that word, they were afraid that everybody would reduce it to that word. So here are some of the words they use. Lamps and faces. Those are two of the words they use for Sfirot. That where other Kabbalists would say Sfirot, they say lamps or faces. And the reason I point this out to you is that what's going on here is, it says when human beings offer the incense offering and God takes a deep breath, that completes the divine structure. Right? That's when the lamps shine. It's, it brings God to life. God's lamps, which are the Sfirot, which are the basic building blocks of the divine, they begin to shine. The lamps shine, the faces shine, and all is tranquility, and it becomes centered. Right? It's an amazing, the power of human action, offering the ritual of offering the incense, and in elsewhere in the Zohar, the other acts of good deeds, including giving charity and performing other kinds of, of good deeds, have the same effect on the divine. Okay. Um, then the last little unit here, I want to talk about, take it back to the human level. Sparagmos, remember, it means tearing apart. And I only did it because you mentioned the Greek thing. That's why I hurriedly, while your back was turned, inserted the Greek words into the presentation. Sparagmos as an existential crisis now on the human level, right? And let's go back to this famous Talmudic saying. Now I'm giving it to you in full. Rabbi Eli said, a person's character may be recognized through three things. His cup, his pocket, and his anger. Now, his cup means when a person's drunk, right? Then you can see their true character. His pocket meaning, it might mean how a person deals with business anytime it comes to spend money. Maybe if the person has asked for charity, it's when you can see what their character is and his anger. And in Hebrew, it's a kind of a pun. And that's why I transliterated. It's Adam nikar bikoso, bikiso, ubikaso. It's impossible to, to reproduce the pun in English, so I transliterated for you. There are all times when somehow normal social inhibitions are gone. When you're drunk, obviously your inhibitions are lowered. When, when things with money, people often some, you see the inner person in some way. It's like the, the hypocrisy sometimes fades away, the, the veneer fades away. And when you're anger, angry, it, it's a moment of the relaxation of normal inhibitions. So just to remind you of this verse here, lo zar, there shall not be within the, an alien God. And now I want to go to a Zohar passage. And this Zohar passage, I think, brings together everything I've been trying to do for over the last uh, 45 minutes. It talks about anger as an, it's really, I think, 
my interpretation of this passage is it's about anger as an opportunity. Anger rips you apart, and it puts before you a choice. And when it says a person is recognizing their anger, the Zohar is going to say, and I'll read this in a second, that's when you are in a moment of existential choice. That's why I call it an existential crisis. The, the existentialists were really into depicting human situations in which somebody had to make a decisive choice. And in that moment of choice, they became who they were. It's a moment where you're, you're, the bonds holding your personality together are loosened. And you really now have to decide which side are you on? What kind of person are you? Right? In that moment of, of disintegration, in, in a way. And so this is what the Zohar says in the, in the Zohar's language. When the Blessed Holy One created the human being, he fashioned him in a supernal image and breathed into him a Holy Spirit. And that is the, the Zohar's way of simply, it's really the Zohar's version of the famous verse from Genesis which says that man was created in God's image, right? B'Tselem Elohim Baraotam. Okay? In the, when the Zohar says it, you know, when, when, the, when the Bible says, you know, God created human beings in, a, in, in the divine image, there are many interpretations, right? The Zohar goes with it very hyper-literally. It describes God's limbs and God's arms and legs and mind and heart and all that. It really goes with the anthropomorphic imagery rather than, as in Maimonides, try to make the anthropomorphic imagery disappear. Okay, but now we're talking about the spirit. So, he fashioned him in a supernal image and breathed into him a Holy Spirit. If one, if, one, if a person conducts that whole, leads that holy soul into alien worship, into Avodah Zarah, he defiles her and abandons the worship of his Lord. So we have within us a divine spirit, but we have to decide where to direct that spirit. This, this incredible power of having a divine spirit we can lead that spirit into various uh, possible uh, uh, paths. If we see a person, I see a person, I'm looking around this room, I don't know any of you. Look at you, you know. We see a person. How do I know what I'm dealing with? Am I dealing with a divine being? Or am I dealing with a demonic being? How can we determine whether to approach him or to avoid him? By his anger is he really known and recognized for who he is. And listen to this. So now, the Zohar now is going to do it a, 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 um, a riff, an improv, a switch on the Talmudic meaning. The Talmudic says, you know, a person's getting angry, you can tell what they're like. I think what the Zohar is now going to do is say, it's when you get angry, you have to decide who you are really like. I think it moves it from the observer to the person themselves. If in a moment of anger he maintains that holy soul, not uprooting her from her place so as to supplant her with that alien god, this is a fitting human being, this is a servant of his Lord, this is a consummate man. Right? If you, during your anger you can still maintain your holiness, that's the proof, or that's when you become, I think I would say, even stronger, a really uh, a righteous person. Right? It's not, not the moment when everything is going fine. It's the moment when, you're, when, when the bonds are loosened and you have to make a choice. 
If in a moment of anger, and this is just repeating it, he maintains that holy soul, not uprooting her from her place, so as to supplant her with that alien god, oh wait, oh, this is the same thing. I have this twice. This is a fitting, it was such a good thing I put it twice. <laughs> this is a fitting human being. This is a servant of his Lord. This is a consummate man. I'm going to go to the next slide. It might say the same thing. <laughs> Ah, the, I, I'm just trying, you know, I... I know, I maybe you're trying to be politically correct. No, I'm not. I'm the word for soul in Hebrew, at an Aramaic, neshama in Hebrew, neshmata in Aramaic is feminine. It's a, it's a feminine noun. Um, and so, I'm, so the, the Aramaic has the feminine pronoun because it's a feminine noun, but it's really more than that. And I, I could talk about that a little later. It's actually... Although it's just a grammatical peculiarity, it's actually a little bit more than that, and I can come, I'll come back to that later. Now, good. If that person does not maintain the soul, uprooting the supernal holiness from its place in order to supplant it with the other side, this is surely a person who rebels against his Lord, and it is forbidden to approach him or to associate with him. Okay? Now, Again, I, I think that what's going on here in the Zohar is they're turning it from a, an essential self, something that pre-exists this moment, to something that's chosen in the moment. If in a moment of anger you choose the holy side, then you're a consummate person. If in a moment of anger you go over to the other side, then you become a demonic person. I think that's what the Zohar is doing here. It's very, very interesting that their riff, they go very close to the rabbinic text, or the Talmudic text, and they move it in a different direction. It's a movement of of becoming, and that Zohar is all about dynamism and becoming. It's not about stasis. This one is called he who tears his soul in anger. That's why sparagmos is the right word here. They're quoting a verse from Job. And the verse, verse from Job actually says, uh, well, I don't, I don't but the verse from Job says, toref nafsho be'apo, right? He, he tears his soul in anger, and the word for anger there is the word for nose. It's very interesting here, and it's related to neshama and breathing and all that. Tearing and uprooting his soul on account of his anger and enabling an alien god to dwell within him. In other words, if you give in to the anger, you allow yourself to be possessed. And we say, I was possessed by anger. What came, we say, what came over me? Right? Which is kind of a modern, secular version of saying I was possessed. What came over me? I wasn't myself. Right? What came over me? Right? If you allow that to happen and you allow the alien god to dwell within you, right, then you are a demonic person. Then it says, listen to this, whoever joins with him or speaks with him is like one who joins himself to alien worship. So speaking to an angry person is like worshiping an idol, it says. Why? Because alien worship tangibly dwells within him. And the word here is mamash, which comes from the word for touch. That's why translated as tangibly. He has uprooted supernal holiness from its place and supplanted it with an alien god. As it is written of an alien god, do not turn to face the idols. It is similarly forbidden to look at his face. The Zohar says, it's a really interesting thing. The Zohar says, you're not allowed to look at the face of an angry person because it's like you're worshiping an idol. Really, for the Zohar, it's really like you're worshiping the devil. Right? And in fact, I think this is one of the reasons why there aren't more artistic depictions of angry scenes in the Bible because when, if you look at an ang angry, an angry face is almost always an ugly face. And so you don't want to depict Moses or Aaron or one of these people, <clears throat> biblical heroes, as ugly. 
I think this is actually one of the secrets as to the question I raised earlier. So the Zohar says, you're not allowed to look at the face of a person who's angry. And you remember the Talmudic saying said, someone who loses control when they're angry is as though they're worshiping idols. Remember that? The Zohar flips it around. They say, one who becomes angry becomes an idol, becomes a devil. Right? That's, that's the brilliance of the Zohar. Let me just, I'm almost done, so I'll finish it and then I'll take all the questions, right? And if you say, now here's the other side. There's anger. What about there's anger and there's anger? What about the social justice anger? What about the anger of the rabbis? Which is thoroughly good. For we have learned that the Torah is fire. That goes back to your burning bush, right? Remember, eat rugza eat rugza. Well, now it turns out not only there's anger, there's anger. There maybe there's fire and there's fire. The anger of the rabbis concerned matters of Torah and seeks to give honor to the Torah. So here the Zohar says, yes, there's also a good anger. There's also a good fire, right? And it's the other kind of fire, the fire of the good side. But again, it is the question of choice, the choice at a moment, right? Remember what I started with. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But we know that anger can go both ways. It can be destructive and it can be generative. Remember Maya Angelou. You should be angry. Talk it, vote it, write it. Don't be bitter. It'll destroy you. But in all other things, anger is not for the service of the Blessed Holy One. For of all sins that a person might do, none is more like idolatry than anger. There is anger, and there is anger, which is the theme song of tonight. Um, I, want to I have this poem by Blake, but I think that rather than read the poem by Blake, I think I will, let's go to questions so we have a lot of time for discussion. The name of the poem, the name of the poem is A Poison Tree. Um, and uh, again, the graphics don't really do justice to Blake's uh, watercolor here, but um, uh, it's an amazing poem. But I, rather than going to that, let's go to questions. And then if there's any extra time, we can do that. Yeah. Interesting, right. That anger has a way of um, propagating itself. Yeah, I think that's right. Propagating itself. Anger feeds on anger, right? And it comes out very poetically in that Zohar passage. This upon this, this riding upon this, right? Anger has that, that quality of, of feeding on itself, and I, I think you're right. It doesn't have to be that way, but often it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Often is, right. Yes. Right, right, exactly, right, right, be creative, yes, be creative, right, and that, that is very much comes out in this Blake poem. Are there other comments or questions? Yeah. So the Dybbuk. Yeah. Is that part of Zohar in the sense of that Dybbuk gets into the, I mean, supposedly, right, it gets in, it creates the evil, and then the attempt at exercising this evil, is that part of Zohar, or is that something, another... Um, that kind of demonic possession is, some, is something that doesn't really appear in the Zohar, but it does appear in later Kabbalah. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it starts. Certainly by the 16th century, by the time of uh, the development of the Kabbalistic center in Sfat, where Isaac Luria and Moshe Cordovero were the leading, leading teachers, that becomes very, very important. Um, and 
what later became known sort of in a Yiddish way as the Dibbuk could be a lot of different things. It can be a spirit who uh, uh, has, has been um, unfinished in this world and is seeking some kind of healing and enters into a body of a living person to seek healing. It can be also can be a demon. There, there are a lot of stories of exorcisms in Tzfat in the 16th century. Um, uh, I heard just heard recently a presentation a couple days ago at the Association for Jewish Studies Conference in San Diego um, of a, a story from that period of a, a woman, uh, the daughter of a leading rabbi in Tzfat at the time, who was possessed by a spirit. And the, the spirit turns out to be like a, a holy person, and, the, the, and, and the, the, the young woman who's possessed by the spirit starts doing all these things as an authoritative man. Says kiddush, even though at that time women weren't allowed to say kiddush, and tells people what to do. And the, the, the presenter, who's a, a friend of mine named Nitza Khan, she was implying basically that the, this possession was, a way, was basically a feminist rebellion against the strictures placed on women at the time. It was a really absolutely fascinating presentation. Um, but the notion of spirit, different kinds of spirits inhabiting the body um, already starts happening in the 13th century. Um, there are basically two different versions as reincarnation or gilgul. And then there's something else called ibur, which li literally means pregnancy. And in this context, it means um, it, can, it can be not a dibuk in the sense of something that makes you suffer, but there's also an ibur in the sense of a a Holy Spirit that enters you in order to help you on your spiritual path. And then what is it, Ibur? I, Ibur. It's a, uh, in English, we could, tra we could transliterate it as I-B-U-R. In Hebrew, it's Ein Yud Bet Vavresh. Um, and it literally means pregnancy. You become pregnant with a Holy Spirit who's like your spirit guide. Um, and that is sort of the good, the good version of a dibuk. Dibuk is generally something bad that makes you suffer, that alienates you from yourself. And Ibur is somebody, is a spirit that comes into you to help you. And although it all sounds very metaphysical, I think they're probably, uh, 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 when I look around the room, and I can see that nobody here is, say, under the age of 18, um, I think we've all, we've all experienced loss in our lives, and I think we've all experienced times in our lives when we've turned to ancestors who've passed and asked them for advice. And, some people take that more literally, and some take it less literally. But I think we probably have all had that experience of seeking seeking advice or or or, or guidance from from beyond. And again, whether it's just your memory, you can interpret it as memory, or if you interpret it in a more emphatic sense. Yeah. Going back to Kabbalistic basics. Yeah. When I when I hear what you're saying, um, and I think of the Kabbalistic sense of the Ein Sof. Yeah that which never ends, yeah. the unity from which all diversity springs through the Sephiro. Uh, and we listen to our text saying that there, that there is nothing in this universe other than God. Yeah. This may look like it's shared, but its essence is God. Right. And then I hear the, um, the poetry and the myths about the smoke and the fire. Yeah. But what, but what it comes back to is when we're, at, when, when we're angry, when there's something wrong, it's a tearing apart. Yeah. In other words, we're not focused on the Ain Sof. Yeah. We're focused on the diversity. Yeah. And when we come back together, yeah. there were words about embracing together and, yeah. and, and the one will yeah. that you had up there. Yeah. Uh, then we come back to the oneness. 
So cutting through the, the beautiful words, the basic uh, Kabbalistic sense is when we get confused and get torn apart and focus on parts of God, then we can break down. And when we can see the fullness of God as the essence of everything, then we retain our um, we retain our proper perspective again. Yeah, it's be beautifully said. I, I couldn't say it more beautifully than that. I I'd say that the the advantage of this mythology, right? Um, is that it highlights the materiality, right? It's not just a perceptual issue, right? It's not just, if I could see, you know, I see the world is totally divided, but if I shift my perceptual stance, I'll see that it's all united. I think the, the, the mythology, paradoxically, and this, this for me is the great paradox of mythology in general, but of Zoharic mythology in particular, Mythology is all about imagination, and it asks you to imagine a world inhabited by spirits and gods and goddesses and devils and so forth, and seems to be alien to our modern sensibility or to a scientific sensibility, right? But there's a way in which it's more realistic and more honest, right? I look at the world, and I see a divided world. I see a world filled with, again, good things and bad things, love and hatred, suffering, real suffering, real evil, right? And... It's healing is not just a question of my shifting my attitude. If I could just you know, squint in the right direction, I'd see it was all for the good. No, there's like really bad things going on. So what is the religious, what is a religious response to that, right? And there are all kinds of religious responses to that. That's one of the main themes of religion, right? I think the mythological response is, here's how it works, right? These are real struggles. I'm not going to deny it, right? And the Zohar's way of re reconciling its realism of confronting a divided world and its monotheism is to say that this all comes out of God. Right? If you say God is everywhere, well, that means that there's an evil side to God because we know there's evil in the world. I mean, it's undeniable. If anybody wanted to deny that, certainly the 20th century proved them wrong. Right? So it's Again, it combines this wildly imaginative uh, mythology with a very honest confrontation with the world. And it's not just a question of seeing through it. If only I could see through it, I'd see that everything was for the best, right? That's more the philosophical stance. This stance is no, this is a real thing. There, it's a really, there's a real adversity, there are really opposing forces here. They may all come out of the divine. It, that only doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. Right? In a way, it would make it easier if you could say, well, the, everything bad in the world is the devil's fault. And the way that lets God off the hook. But if the, the demonic forces in the universe are themselves offshoots of a misfortune, a dissociation of the divine personality, that's even more troubling. Right? That's more troubling. That means that, that, that there's a, there is no secure place to run to, and there's only a confrontation with what with the real. And again, this is where I think the real and the mythological sort of converge, and that's what I, one of the things I love about this, this studying this and talking about it, and gives you a language to, to think about it in. 
Yeah. It's, it's uh, <clears throat> a, use, a useful segue into what I'm thinking, which is kind of unrelated, but maybe not. We read a lot of, uh, of scientific stuff now about how the universe is expanding, always, always expanding. Uh -huh. And you think of universe as all that is, every baseball strand of spaghetti, feeling, earth, molecules, it's everything. So yeah. how could it be expanding into something <laughs> right. if it is already everything? And then I thought, well, maybe it's expanding into whatever God is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, I'm, I'm no I'm no scientist, but one of the fascinating things I think about that idea of the universe expanding is the universe creates it, the space into which it's expanding, which is something that boggles my my mind. Right? It there is no empty space into which it's expanding. It's creating the space into which it's expanding as it expands, which I find, again, I can't not not being a scientist, I, I couldn't even begin to to try to figure that out. Yeah. Other comments? Uh -huh. Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, but I think that also, in order to get there, you first have to confront the troubling dimension of it, and it would get to, to let go of the security that somewhere there's a perfect, tranquil being. In a way, that's very comforting. It's a comforting thought. But if even when you get to that, to the divine being, it turns out the divine is also engaged in struggle, as Rabbi Ishmael discovered when he went into the Holy of Holies. Um, so something I want to say here that's a little bit related is to give you a sense of the kind of hope that this gives or, or the possible hope. There's a passage in the Zohar, a very mysterious passage, that, just, that says, that, again, drawing on a rabbinic myth, it talks about worlds that were created before our world. And that, it draws on a rabbinic myth um, in, in the Midrash, but it does a, a particular spin on it. And it associates it with, the, there's a very... Uh, a seemingly irrelevant passage in Genesis about the kings. It starts off, these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned a king over the children of Israel. And then it lists all the kings. And it seems to be like, like I don't really need this in my holy book. You know, like, why don't you say more, why don't we have more like, love thy neighbor as thyself, and not tell me about the names of the kings of Edom before. And the Tsar, in classic Jewish fashion, says, you think this passage is irrelevant, it's actually the secret, the deepest secret in the whole Bible. And it basically says that when God originally wanted to create the universe, he, you know, blew, you know, he sketched out the sphero, the basic building blocks of the cosmos, and he measured them and sketched them and, and designed them. And then they came into being, but they 
couldn't endure. And then the Torah popped out. And the Torah said to God, somebody who wants to do tikkun on others, first better do tikkun on himself. It's really an amazing, amazing passage. And then, and then you know, a good creation ensues and the proper spirit ensued. And they identify the, the, the world, that the cosmos that didn't endure with the land of Edom. And here, the secret meaning of this passage that, that comes out, a later Kabbalistic commentator uh, draws out explicitly, is that it turns out that Edom, so this, this cosmos didn't endure is basically a demonic cosmos, right? But this land of, who is Edom of the land of Edom? It must be the creator god before the creator god's tikkun. That means that Edom is just another an immature or, or, or adolescent or, 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 or a demonic version of the divine. If, if the land of Edom is what comes out when God wants to create the universe before he's ready, that means that Edom is a name of God. And of course, in the Jewish tradition, Edom is the great enemy. First, Edom is a name of Esau, Jacob's brother. Then Edom becomes the name of a nation that fights Israel. Then Edom gets associated in rabbinic literature with Rome and eventually with Christianity. So Edom in the Jewish tradition is the great enemy of the Jews. In this Zoharic passage, it turns out Edom is another name for God. Right? Now, it's both disturbing right, and also very, very interesting if you think of its political, moral implications. That means your ultimate enemy is really another side of yourself, right? And really you have to find that, you have to do rectification on yourself rather than trying to project it all onto the enemy. It's a very, very provocative, provocative passage. Um, should we, uh, I don't know, we, how are we doing with time? Should we, it's 8.30, should we take one last question? We have a last one. We have a last question? Yeah. Well, that, you remember the verse that I gave about God smelling the sweet savor? That was after the flood. So that, that, that it's the very passage the Zohar brings to, as a proof text for its idea that God's anger can be appeased through inducing God to take a deep breath, that passage is from the Noah story. Because the first thing Noah does when he leaves the, the ark is he, he offers a sacrifice to God, and it says, God smelled the, smelled the sweet savor of the sacrifice, right? and God said, I won't destroy the world again. So it's exactly that passage that, that comes from. Of course, the second thing Noah does is he plants a vineyard and gets drunk, but that we'll leave that, maybe we'll leave that for a different time. What's that? <laughs> no, I can't play. If I spent, you know, 40 days in an ark with giraffes, I might also, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. For okay. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. 
please consider going to www.valleybeitmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.